Welcome back to the Digital World Tomorrow podcast, brought to you by Manager, the AI-powered email management solution developed by Arab, the global professional services. It's Joseph here for Manager, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nisha Talagala to discuss all things AI, covering the myths and realities. I'll leave the introductions over to you, Nisha. Sure. Uh, so I'm Nisha. Nice to meet you all. I'm the CEO of an edtech startup called AI Club, and um, I've been in the computer science field for all of my career over 20 years. I started by getting my uh, doctorate at UC Berkeley, and then I founded a number of startup companies as well as worked in uh, large corporations like Intel and Sun Microsystems. I started out with uh, distributed software and then moved into artificial intelligence about seven years ago. Uh, this is my second AI startup. Uh, my first was called Parallel. M, also a company that I co-founded, and it was acquired by Data Robot, and it was focused on enterprise artificial intelligence, particularly production machine learning for large-scale enterprises. So very nice to be here. Sounds like you've got a lot of experience there to definitely provide some great insights here today. In your recent article, AI for Businesses, you discussed the myths and realities. It would be great if you give our listeners a bit of insight to exactly what AI is. Sure. So, so AI, first of all, is actually an umbrella term. So by umbrella term means that it's actually a term for a lot of different technologies. So it's not just one thing. And so when people are talking about AI, typically in the news, they're usually talking about a particular kind of AI. And then depending on what the article is about, you can kind of figure out which type of AI. But in general, kind of any technology which is helping a computer do something that the human brain does quite naturally, you know, can be considered artificial intelligence. So things like, you know, we're speaking right now, you know, you can understand my voice, you can understand the meanings of the sentences that I'm saying. All of that is, you know, very natural for humans, extremely hard for computers. And so there are different technologies that do everything from understanding voice to understanding text to understanding meaning. All of that falls into the broad category of AI. I think that's definitely a great overview and should help a lot of our listeners better understand AI um, to start off with. I think many people, though, get confused with the concept of AI and machine learning. Could you help us separate the two concepts? Yeah, so so the way to kind of think about it is that um, machine learning is more of a technical term. So, for example, if you're an engineer, you usually don't really consider yourself as doing AI. You consider yourself as doing machine learning or deep learning or some other, you know, technical subset. So machine learning is a computer science uh, topic that is really about helping machines learn from data. And so um, AI is more of a big scale. And so, you know, anything that involves computers thinking or learning usually falls under AI. And then machine learning is a specific subset of it. You know, and it's one of several subsets. So you'll hear about other things like natural language processing, which is also a subset of AI. So that's the way to think about it. I think that's definitely a clear understanding now of between the two. I think listeners should have a better understanding of machine learning and AI. I think that moves us on to our next talking point, the ethics of AI. I think a big concept that I'm questioning a lot is how do we prevent AI being corrupted? So I know that AI can start off as like quite a useful tool, but how do we prevent it from becoming weaponized? For example, the use of like motion technology, I, I imagine that could be easily weaponized. Absolutely. And so this is a really, you know, this is a very big area, the area of AI ethics, and it comes 
from a number of things. So first of all, personally, I believe it's an extremely important area. And so, for example, even when it comes to AI education, you know, people like myself, we feel that part of the reason we need AI education is because people need to appreciate the ethical issues. So the way that the ethical issues really manifest is, you know, sort of multifold. One is that AI learns from data. You know, so it doesn't start out with any particular knowledge. It pretty much acquires knowledge over time based on directions that is given. Now, where does data come from? Data comes from our past. There are many, many things that happened in our past that nobody wants repeated, right? And the important thing to recognize about AI is that it has no judgment, no perspective, no independent opinion. It learns what it's taught. And so therefore, if it is taught bad history, unfortunately, it will assume this is what humans want perpetuated. So things like bias, for example, can materialize, you know, in past history where, you know, for example, minorities or underserved, you know, represented, you know, groups can be considered to be threatening or be treated unfairly because history has treated them unfairly. And the AI doesn't know that that is wrong. The AI assumes that if that's what it's supposed to learn from, that is what you would expect it to perpetuate. So then the question really becomes that, you know, in the, you know, in the hands of people who are either unaware or malicious, then these can cause real kinds of trouble. So particularly when you talk about motion tracking and such, you know, this is the kind of thing that is, you know, so if you look at like, for example, facial recognition, you know, in the United States, you know, several, there's basically somewhere between 10 and 15 individual states and cities that have simply banned the use of facial recognition by the police. And because they feel that the, you know, we haven't yet learned how to treat these algorithms to be unbiased. And if it is used in the police, that's going to result in real harm to minorities. But the import, you know, and then there are other countries that are banning it whole outright. And but however, there are other countries that are simply employing it very aggressively. And so, so it really comes down to the technology, like most technologies, is imperfect. Yeah. And then if there's human intention attached to it that is malicious, then yes, it can become a weapon. Just like, you know, you know, nuclear power can be the source of electricity or it can be the source of a nuclear bomb. Pretty much depends on what you do with it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think as well, it's, it might not be directly through the intentions of being malicious, but I guess as well, AI can be quite biased if the criteria is quite ambiguous. So if you give a criteria of like black and white, there could still be a lot of information within the gray section. Exactly. And this is really very important to kind of recognize is that AIs are pattern matchers. So they can find patterns if they happen to exist. And sometimes they find patterns that we cannot see. That, that is, in fact, their strength. The problem is, however, that, you know, there may be patterns. So a simple example to illustrate this would be if you wanted to ensure that, you know, a hiring tool did not evaluate, rec- you know, resumes in a way that was biased against a minority, The first thing you can do, which is really obvious, is ensure that the resume does not contain any race or gender information. You know, that's obvious. Just remove it. However, your address will probably tell people a lot about what your ethnic background is because people tend to cluster in places where people like them live. If that is removed, okay, now I've removed the address. Then guess what? If you've got a single, even a single sentence that you've written in there, the way you express yourself, the way you describe the work that you did, is enough to tell people a lot about where you learned how to write. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and different, you know, uh, cultural groups tend to just simply express the same concept differently. And this is the kind of thing that a human may not even notice, but the AI will figure it out. And so it's really hard, even if you think that you've extracted out these things, 
you know, sometimes it's just really hard to remove them because they're so ingrained in the information we provide to the AI. And it's difficult, unless you're very, very careful, it's difficult to explain to the AI how to remove. I guess it could be something as simple as like the difference between us two at the moment, like American English and British English. You use a criteria that you wouldn't really think about, but it can easily be influenced. Exactly. I guess that leads us on to another point. Do you think the level of data required for AI is just becoming too overwhelming? In a sense of, are we almost becoming desensitized to how much data we're providing? For example, like the likes of like Netflix, we don't really think of like what we're giving away in terms of AI, just in terms of that risk to reward ratio, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. And this is where the intersection of AI and privacy kind of come in. So the thing I think one of the things that I think people have sort of conflated, which may not be necessarily the best thing is AI is not the reason for your loss of privacy. The reason for your loss of privacy is a corporation that has decided they can make money off of your information. AI is simply one of several tools they can use to do that. Now, in the absence of AI, they may not have a good way to make money off of you, in which case they may not be as motivated to get as much money, right? But ultimately, they're motivated to get as much information. And then I think that this is a place where really every human has to make their own decision. So, for example, like if you were to ask the question of, in, in the United States, we have these things, I don't know if you have them in the UK, but we have these things called grocery discount cards. It's a little card that your grocery store gives you. And if you use this card regularly, it will give you like a 10% discount on everything from milk to eggs to whatnot. Oh, uh, yeah, we have them here. Yeah. And so, but you know what that card is? It's a way for them to track all of your groceries. Because yeah, without you really think card, of it, you? Yeah. Without that card, if I walk into a grocery store and I pay cash, nobody has any idea what I bought. But with that card, now they know. And so now suddenly they can have a pretty good idea of maybe what I even have for breakfast. If I tend to buy eggs on a regular basis, chances are I'm making something with eggs in the morning and stuff like that. And so now if you ask people, is this okay? A good chunk of people will say, yeah, the 10% 10 is worth it. I don't care. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, on the other hand, you know, companies that are, you know, like, for example, mattress manufacturers are now making AI beds, you know, where the the bed will mesh, will listen to you sleep. And be able to decide all sorts of things like whether you're about to get the flu. The bed knows that you're about to get the flu weeks before you ever sneeze. I'm definitely surprised by that one. There you go. That's the point, right? It's a judgment call. You know, people who might think, yeah, the egg thing is fine, might say, no, no, I definitely do not want an AI listening to me while I sleep. Because that one puts a level of freak out in us, right? Yeah, I think it's one of those ones. I guess it's down to the individual user of like what they want to provide in terms of data and what they don't want to provide. Exactly. And so when we're all kind of trying to discover that, and so I think the only two things that are possibly constants in this is that, you know, there are definitely laws coming out where these laws are called right to explanation and they're opt out laws. And the idea is that if you should at the very least have the option of saying, I don't want information gathered about me, or you should have the option of saying, I want you to explain to me exactly what you intend to do with this information. Yeah. And so that's what's called the right to explanation. So in that, if those two things come about, then for good or for bad, you can make your own decision. If you decide you want to give information, have at it. If you decide you don't, someone should be able to tell you what's going to be done with it so that you can decide. And then the other side of this is education. There's also a third emerging field, which is very, very nascent, is the idea that you should be the arbiter of your own data. So why should Facebook make money off of my shopping habits? I'm the one who should be selling my shopping habits. If companies want yes, to buy definitely. my shopping habits, pay me. Don't pay Facebook, right? It's crazy you say that. I actually did see something recently on a show here called Dragon's Den, where they mm-hmm. released a new style of software on the show for that exact same concept. 
So they yeah. were actually getting money back from their own learning behavior. So I thought it was quite a good concept. Yeah, so because ultimately, you know, if, if data is going to be monetized and data is mon that data is money at this point. Yeah. The person who should make the money is the person who's creating the data, not some arbitrary individual in between. I think we'll still learn that concept of data is sort of like a new currency at the end of the day. Um, so I guess that moves us on to another talking point. What is the cost of AI? I guess the concept of replacing workers is often thrown around. But do you see it more of a issue of workers needing to be more upskilled rather than AIs replacing them? So I think, you know, one thing that you can kind of do is you can kind of look at history in terms of technologies, right? And if you look at technologies that are transformative, like cars or automation in the industrial, you know, era or even computers, what happens is that there's always some task that was previously not automated that is going to be automated. And so in the short term, there is going to be a displacement. You know, whatever, you know, whoever human did that task is now no longer needed to do that task. But if you look at history, for example, like cars may have rendered, you know, horse-drawn carriages obsolete, but ultimately cars have resulted in probably a massive array of economic benefit and jobs that couldn't possibly be conceived with, with you know, in the absence of that kind of transportation. So AI is very much the same way. You know, AI tends to be, it does tend to have the ability to automate simple tasks. It pushes the humans to take on more cognitively complex tasks. If that upskilling does not occur, then yes, there will be a lot of displaced people and a lot of suffering. If the upskilling does occur, however, you know, there are many, many more things that the humans can simply transition to do. So I don't want to like, assume, you know, imply that that is a simple transition, but it is, uh, you know, history has shown us that these transitions do occur and they usually end up in, you know, better quality of life for all. But the intermediate period, if you don't upskill, is, is going to be challenging. And so the upskilling is probably the single most important thing that needs to be done and to make sure that there isn't, uh, you know, a real impact to, you know, to life and to livelihoods. And, you know, another way to kind of think about it is that I think that the employee is what matters, not the job. The job may go away, but as long as the employee has something to do that is, you know, fulfilling and generates a livelihood, then it shouldn't matter so much whether it's the old job or the new job. So, so in the, we're in the midst of that transition. There's a lot of angst. You know, the technology is clearly pushing ahead. There are many, many efforts to upskill, to retrain and such like that. And all of that is very sorely needed. I couldn't agree more. I definitely think upskill is going to be a huge priority just because as it's like with anything, it's a new tool. So a new tool doesn't mean we're getting rid of uh, the need for workers. It just means the requirement's going to change. Exactly. I think we'll slowly learn the process for, throughout that. I think that moves us onto another stage as well. Like, I guess like the main topic, myths versus realities. On your article, you mentioned about I need to use the most advanced AI tech in like the concept. Could you break that down further? Yeah. So, so what happens is that, you know, AI as a technology has been around for more than 50 years. Now, one of the things that has made it recently, you know, receive such you know, an enormous amount of growth is basically the fact that there's a lot of data now. You know, 50 years ago, data about us, data about, you know, computers, data about sensors of temperature and stuff like that simply wasn't been gathered aggressively enough. And so the AIs had nothing to learn from. So there are some technologies in AI that are extremely robust that are not new by any stretch of the imagination. They're just now applicable to the data. 
And so one of the things that I have seen when, you know, dealing with particularly business users, you know, that are who are new to AI is because they're so inundated in the news with so many advanced innovations, sometimes they feel that this must be what they're expected to do to be successful is to tap into whatever is the most advanced innovation. And if you talk to somebody who has built you know, real world AIs for decades, you know, companies like LinkedIn or Facebook, one of the first things they will tell you is build the simplest thing you can think of. And the reason is because they've been burnt. Because if you build the simplest thing, you can always make it better. Whereas if you work really hard to build a complicated thing, first of all, it may be a waste of your time. Things tend to change, you know, the longer it takes, the harder it is to, you know, stick with your idea and things like that. And so, it's just something that we've all, those of us who have built real world AIs know from experiences, start simple, and that's the path to success. And so that's really what I was trying to point out is that don't be pressured by all the fancy things on the news. Those are things that are working in labs. That doesn't mean that it has to be what you built. I guess like most things, you have to learn to walk, crawl before you can run. Build exactly. the foundations and then see what can develop from that. Exactly. I guess another point as well from the myths versus reality is it takes a team to build a successful AI. Yes. And this, I think, is a really important thing, because one thing is that, you know, AI professionals are really still in very short supply. You know, the job market is, you know, it's very tight for them. And they're, and part of the reason is because there are so many people who want to use the technology, but not enough people who know how to implement it. However, at the same time, you know, uh, what happens is that the turnover is actually surprisingly high, which means that these people are not happy in their jobs. Right. And, you know, the, the point I wanted to make there was, and I've had a lot of personal experience, not just, you know, having teams, but also hiring these teams and understanding what it takes. So if the entire, you know, if, if a critical mass in your corporation does not understand the reality, it becomes very hard for the AI person to be effective. So for example, like say you hired a smart AI person and you're super excited, they come on board and you tell them something like, build me an AI to improve my sales and they'll go, and you expect me to do that, how? You know, yeah. and then, you know, they will say something like, where's the data? And so we don't have any data. I read in the news that you don't, you know, companies this or that or the other thing. And then now the AI person is stuck. So part of this is that you need to have a certain amount of critical mass where there's realistic thinking about what it you know takes to build one of these. And when you do that, then you create a, a team where everybody in the team is comfortable. Yeah, and, makes sense. And they know what they need to do. They don't have expectations that are unrealistic. Therefore, they're less likely to fail. That where there are engineers who, you know, understand what the data scientist is trying to accomplish. The data scientist appreciates that they get the information they need. Now you have a a recipe for success. Whereas if you expect magic out of the data scientist and nobody else has any idea what's going on, then pretty much the only outcome will be that the data scientist will leave. And that's pretty much that's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's really making sure there's the, that level of realistic expectations throughout the business. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and not process. from one person, but from the entire team charged with delivering the product. And that's part of the reason why the AI literacy is so important is, you know, it's not just the data scientist who needs to appreciate the AI. It, it is pretty much the team around them. Now, they don't have to appreciate it at the algorithmic depth, but they do have to appreciate it for what it is, what it's capable of, the issues that it has how long it takes, those kinds of things have to be more of a general knowledge. So can you suggest any other best practice in terms of implementing it? Yeah, so generally speaking, you know, um, there's a life cycle. And so one of the things that I, I kind of, I think, pointed out in this article, the MITS article, is really half the battle is defining your problem well, you know, and defining your problem to be as precise as you you, you can make it. 
and also having a clear understanding of what success would look like. So a very simple question to ask, always you should ask yourself is how am I doing this pro how am I solving this problem right now? Because ultimately, if the AI cannot do that better in some way, then it has no reason to exist. And just because it's AI doesn't make it justifiable. So you should be able to say, like, for example, if you wanted to improve, I don't know, customer acquisition, you should be able to say my current technique where I have a team of people and they do the following things gets me, you know, three new leads a day. Yeah. If the AI either ha has to be able to get you three new leads at lower cost or it has to be able to get you more than three. If it cannot do that, then it doesn't matter what it is. It is simply not worth. So if you don't have something like that, then you don't have a situation where you can assess between the simple things and the complicated things. So if a data scientist comes to you and says, no, I have a grand, great algorithm. I heard about it in a research conference yesterday. Yeah, you know, I cannot judge whether that's a good use of my time unless I can understand whether it improves my situation. Yeah. Just because it's cool doesn't is not good enough. I guess really it's like breaking it down to something like three steps, expectations, defining and being realistic. So what might the future of AI look like? So, I mean, I think that what you are really seeing is, you know, several different things. So one of them is I just uh, recently wrote an article called The Tipping Point, which is so people worry about, you know, this AI singularity. The AI singularity is a little bit of a science fiction event where an AI becomes capable of self-learning at such a rate that, you know, something like the Terminator movies happens. But I think, you know, realistically, there are, by the way, some technologies that are definitely heading in direction. However, the much more realistic thing is that it is all around us. They're not particularly smart AIs, but there's like hundreds of them. There's one checking out your shopping purchases. There's another one looking at your movies. You know, there are three in your kitchen, yeah, yeah. trying to tell you how to set timers for your eggs and whatnot. And so the reality is that there are these, you know, these little AIs that are everywhere that are working with humans. And so the human AI combination is generating a lot more value than AI to replace humans. And so that is really our more near term is that we can expect AI assistance in practically every aspect of our lives. Now, while this is going on, there are definitely larger and larger models being built, you know, sometimes by companies, sometimes by nations. So Google announced a 1.6 trillion parameter model about a month ago, and China announced one two weeks ago that was 1.7 trillion parameters. Wow. So these are like enormous models and they learn from the entire internet. So there are definitely these kinds of models that are, ex I wouldn't say they're really close to the human brain, but they're definitely approaching some kind of general intelligence. Yeah. So where that goes will also time will tell, but the thing that's much more likely in your face is that there are probably 20 eyes in your life right now that are tracking everything, little, little things about your life. And those are the ones you need to deal with today. It definitely sounds like something that's going to be quite exciting in the next few years. Why there is that fear of like that 1% of AI, I think the generally 99% is going to be quite interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. So do you have any top tip for our listeners? If there's any like last remarks you could give our listeners in terms of AI? So, I mean, one area that I'm very passionate about is what I call AI literacy. And I really believe that everybody, you know, I'm literally everybody should become AI literate. It's like a new language. You know, and, and part of the reason that you really want to look at this is because ultimately it is now a fact of life. Like imagine like trying to live your life without the internet or live your life without having any interaction whatsoever with a car, right? These are technologies and nobody is suggesting you need to have a PhD in computer science, but if you don't have some basic understanding of how this stuff works, it will become impossible to function. Yeah. yeah. And so if you look at like 
the average person's understanding of the internet, you don't need to know how the packets work. You do, however, need to know what's connected, what's on in your you know, house. Is there a camera monitoring you? How is this related to your privacy? Should your kids be using it? These are the kinds of things you need to know to function. So there's similar level of literacy for AI. And so I would encourage everyone to really develop that level of literacy because these days, frankly, you know, if you want to you know, navigate your children around this situation, you need to know that. So stuff like that. That's what I would sort of leave people away with is, you know, get that base level of literacy. Yeah, it's great. I guess it's that level of awareness as well around AI. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Anisha. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Digital World of Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Mount Manager. If you liked what you heard, please review, subscribe and share the podcast and stay tuned for future episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter with the username at mail underscore manager and on LinkedIn, as well as check out our website, mailmanager.com. Thanks very much.